Bibles with you, please open them to Acts. We're continuing in Acts chapter 2 as we look at God's Word together. My name is Pastor Nate. I'm the lead pastor. If you're visiting with us or if you're new, let us know who you are. Just fill out one of those connection cards. There's actually a card in the pew, pew in the chair in front of you uh, so that you can fill those out for yourselves and let us know that you're here. So we can just touch base throughout the week, which would be great, because who doesn't like coffee or tea or hot chocolate? If you don't like any of those, frappuccino, I don't know. All right. Acts chapter 2, we're in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. Uh, And where we've been so far is Jesus has ascended. He's ascended into heaven. And as Jesus ascended 10 days later, he sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit filled the 120 uh, people, disciples of Jesus, in this upper room. They began to speak in languages that uh, are known to those who are heard. And, And now we see here in this moment one of the apostles, the apostle Peter, standing up in front of this crowd of, we don't really know, but there was at least 3,000 people, if not more. And he begins to preach. And I'm not going to lie about this passage. There's a lot in this passage. Uh, And there's going to be some heavy lifting, which is okay, because that's all right. So be patient. Let's walk through this together. And there's also this really great little uh, resource that we try to have for, well, it's for kids, but I had an adult complain that I said it was for kids. Um, But there's sermon note-taking pages that just help you break down things, like what is the the preacher talking about? What's the pastor talking about? Uh, Do I have any questions? So if you're kids, you can go home and talk to your parents about it, or your parents can come and talk to me about it, and then they can go talk to you about it. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So I encourage you to get one of those if you have a hard time uh, following along. There's also some spots for doodling because if you're like me, you need to doodle, and that's all right. Uh, one of the things from my sabbatical is, you know, I realized how bad my attention span is as I spent those three months listening to people for three. It was good times, so I learned a lot. Uh, but in Acts 2, verses 14, we see the man who a couple of months before in this text in Acts uh, was hiding. He was in hiding, and now he's different. Now we see him doing something completely different. He's up front with the people, and we see what happens when the empowerment of the Holy Spirit takes steps practically. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, verses 14, all the way to 41, the word of the Lord says this, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit in all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below, and blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, 
Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hand of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the bangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he is both dead and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ and he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are... all our witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know For certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the chance we have to gather in this way to worship you. Lord, we've worshiped you through singing. We've worshiped you through the reading of your word, through prayer, through giving of our tithes and our offerings. And now, Lord, we continue to worship you through the preaching of your word, through the listening of the preaching of your word. So, Lord, I pray that we would make much of you in that, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what your word has to say. So, Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified and I want to speak of you and praise your name. And God, I can't do this on my own, so by your Spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name above all things, Lord, to bring joy to your people and salvation to the lost. Amen. In verses 14 to 21, we see the Holy Spirit has come. In verses 14 to 15, Peter stands with confidence as he uh, explains by pointing to God's word. Remember, the last sentence we saw last week is that everyone thought that the people were drunk. 
So Peter takes a point to explain to them that this is not drunkenness, but this is a sign of what Joel has spoken of so many years before. He does this with confidence, which is completely different than what he was doing before. And as he begins to work this through, in verse 16, we see that the prophet Joel talked about this many years before, as Peter actually quotes Old Testament scripture more than he actually speaks. I think that's a good sign for us as well. Let us always go to the word of God when it comes to wisdom, or when it comes to encouraging people, or when it comes to even proclaiming the gospel. And as we continue on in verses 17 to 20, Joel begins to declare in these last days. So what are the last days? It's funny, I just had a phone call with my mom this morning talking about this. I was like, it's funny you asked me, Mom. See, at this Pentecost, the last days have come and will continue until Christ's return. We are in the last days. This is a time that the Holy Spirit comes that marks the beginning of the end times. These are the days that God has told his people so many years before, like prophets like Joel and, and Isaiah. They have arrived at this moment. That makes in the last days is the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah has come. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He, he was buried and he was rose again, risen again. It is Jesus' death and resurrection that accomplishes his saving work. And now the work of the Holy Spirit will build his church, Christ's church, as a key event that needs to happen before Jesus' return. Because Jesus is coming back. We even see the urgency of that message in Peter's message. As he says near the end, save yourselves from this crooked generation. In Isaiah 44, 3 and 4, God says so many years before this moment of time, for I will pour out, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry grounds, and I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. There will be a pouring out of God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. But this won't be limited to just empowering individuals for ministry. In the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit resting upon people at specific times for specific purposes. We even see the Holy Spirit leaving. We see that example with Saul, King Saul. But here, God will pour out on all people, all of his people. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or old or young or social status. All those who are his will receive the pouring out of his spirits. We see that with the 120 that are in this room. And what is the outcome? Crazy stuff begins to happen. Prophesying, visions, signs, wonders, and during the age of the apostles, we will continue to see that throughout Acts. But ultimately, the outcome of this pouring out is in verse 21, as the outcome of the Spirit is salvation. The Spirit isn't just given to equip believers for service like we see here with Peter and the 120, but to make possible the sort of transformed relationships with God promised in passages like in Isaiah 32, which says, Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, that the effects of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. 
See, the Spirit is given to minister the benefits of Jesus' saving work to believers, both individually and corporately, and to make possible the conversion of others. So let's walk through again, what does the Holy Spirit do? Because Luke puts the Holy Spirit front and center throughout all of Acts. The Holy Spirit works in the Christian life. He helps. The Holy Spirit indwells the Christian, which means he seals the Christian until the day of redemption, which means that this is irreversible, which means that you can't lose the Holy Spirit. He guards and guarantees the salvation of the one he indwells. The Holy Spirit also helps the Christian to pray, as Romans 8 says, and intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Holy Spirit also regenerates. He, he makes us more like Christ. He gives us that new heart that enables us to believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior of the world. He gives an overflowing hope he gives all joy and peace. And with all of that, it is also the Holy Spirit who convicts the unbeliever of their sin and the need of a Savior. So practically for us, this means that, again, the Holy Spirit seals you and indwells you. And if that happens, that means that the devil can't be in you either. Let us remember this. Christians are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. He unites us together. And surely the Holy Spirit would not allow a demon to possess the same person he is dwelling in. It is unthinkable that God would allow one of his children whom he purchased by his blood, the blood of Christ, and made into a new creation to be possessed and controlled by a demon. That's why Galatians 5 has two lists. Fruits of the flesh and fruits of the Spirit. One example of our sinful nature, and the other, a list of what happens when the Holy Spirit indwells the Christian. Now, do we do that perfectly? I don't know about you, but I'm not patient perfectly. I like to think I'm more patient today than I was, hopefully, yesterday. But it's an ongoing process. But the fruit is there, it can be seen, it can be known. And that doesn't mean that there's not spiritual oppression, but there's a difference between a controlling aspect and oppression, okay? The Holy Spirit indwells the Christian and can't be controlled by the devil. And for those who are in Christ, there's an escape from temptation, so you don't, can't say that the devil made me do it, or that person is just being controlled by the devil. Believers are told to resist the devil, not to cast him out, but to resist. And Peter is another example of what happens when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's what the Holy Spirit does. So Luke puts the Holy Spirit front and center as God pours out his Spirit on his people and empowers them to do great and amazing things. But most importantly, we see throughout Acts that the word of the Lord continues to increase. And that's not because of the apostles' great and amazing preaching. It's because of the work of the Holy Spirit through the conviction of sin. Taking this man that once was a coward behind enemy lines, denying that he even knew Jesus, 
to a man who would boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the very people that he was just a short couple months before running away from. So in verses 22 to 35, Peter begins to expand that Jesus was delivered up and the importance of what that means for the gospel and for us as Christians. And after Peter has explained from the Bible what is happening at this moment with all of these languages and people being able to hear the good news of Jesus Christ in their own language, he goes on further to explain that what, consummation, what consummated this pouring out of the Holy Spirit that is the result of Jesus' death and resurrection. So in verse 22, we see that Jesus was a man. He was attested. He was proved. He was genuine. He was the real deal. How? Peter continues on. He says, look at what he did. In Luke 7, Jesus responds to John the Baptist's disciples when they ask, are you the Messiah? And Jesus, all Jesus says is this in verse 22 of chapter 7 in Luke. He says, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Yes, he is the Messiah. God did it through him, and his works are proof that he is God's appointed Messiah. And Peter actually hits the people listening with something that you and I would probably really struggle with. I don't know, because we're Canadian. We like to be super nice or something. I don't know. But Peter comes along and hits him really hard. Jesus is the Messiah. He did all of these great works. And guess what? You crucified him. You did. As he says, as you yourselves know, that they are the ones that saw these things. In verse 23, he continues to go on. And even though these people saw Jesus doing all these things, they still rejected him, giving Jesus to be killed by the hands of lawless men. But all of this was according to God's plan and foreknowledge, as Peter says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You know what the word definite means? It means for sure. It happened. This was a plan. And Peter's very careful to balance God's sovereignty over world events and human responsibility for evil deeds. Jesus died as a result of deliberate human decision because they were exercising their God-given freedom of choice. And in their sinful nature, they chose to kill the creator of the world. One person put it this way, the Jewish crowd at Pentecost could not avoid the responsibility in Jesus' death. Nonetheless, in the mystery of divine will, God was working in these events of willful human rebellion to bring about his eternal purpose, bringing about the tragedy of the cross, the triumph of the resurrection. But it wasn't just the Jews, because Jesus died on a Roman cross. So not just one group is responsible for this, but all people are. Peter so carefully balances all of the participants of the drama of Jesus' death. All people stand before God guilty, but are sovereign 
but our sovereign God is triumphant as in the death and resurrection of Jesus is the mounting of the greatest rescue plan ever known. So God ordained the means as well as the ends of the human events without violating human freedom or removing human responsibility. And I think a great example of this is with, with, uh, Joshua, uh, with, in the, with Joseph sorry, in the technicolor coats, as we call it. In Genesis 50, there's this wonderful passage, verse 20, as he's talking to his brothers, as his brothers just figured out that that man that has so much authority over them is the man that they had thrown into a well and sold into slavery. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So in verse 24, we see that humans nailed Jesus to the cross, but it was God who raised him up. In the resurrection, there is a new birth from death. Jesus was loosed from the cords of death that held him. And I love that scene in Chronicles of Narnia, because I like that book and I like that movie, where Aslan is killed by the witch. He's tied down to the stone rock, and all of a sudden there's this earthquake and the rock breaks and then Aslan is, 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 finds himself behind Lucy and, and Susan and presents himself to them. And I love the inscription on there because C.S. Lewis had a point in saying these things. And he shows the inscription on that table that a person who had committed no sin and sacrificed himself would reverse death. See, Peter is saying that Christ died for our sins and rose again. This isn't something you work harder for. This isn't something you hustle more for. This isn't something you, this is, this is something you rest in, like a very comfortable hammock. This good news should bring relief and peace and joy because Jesus paid it all. See, Jesus' crucifixion was a necessary part of God's plan, and God follows that plan with rising Jesus from the dead. This was a plan from long before. This whole gospel plan is all promised in Scripture, and I love how Brian Chapel puts it. God's grace breaks through the walls of the worst of human rebellion. And Peter begins to quote yet another Old Testament passage in verses 25 to 31 as he quotes Psalm 16 as a proof text pointing to Jesus' resurrection. King David was obviously dead, as he says. He points. I can just picture Peter kind of like pointing in the general direction of the tomb as he's preaching. Look, we can go visit his tomb. So what David is talking about in Psalm 16 is not talking about himself, but must be talking about someone else. So Jesus is the one, the only one, who has conquered death and is a descendant of David. So Jesus must be the long-awaited promised Messiah that David foresaw. And this is another example of why we can trust what the Bible says. Because what the Bible has said continues to be proven true. It's very hard to lie about something that, happened, that was written 2,000 years before the actual event. It's not like you can pick up the phone and get ahead of the news. In verse 32, we see that those talking saw Jesus Christ risen. 
God's plan doesn't end with Jesus rising from the dead, but him being exalted, as he says later on in 33. This is a position of sovereign authority. The Son is now glorified with the glory he had before the world existed. We see that in John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And what is seen is the outcome of the Holy Spirit who was sent. Here is a beautiful pointing to the Trinity. Peter tells us of how the Father worked in the life and the death and the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, who is his Son. And the Holy Spirit, who is empowering the disciples to do all the miracles that his servants are doing, including the speaking in different languages. And what's neat about this is that John the Baptist announced that Jesus would do just just this. As he says in, in Luke 3, that John would baptize with water, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Peter continues to make this point that Jesus is the Lord and he is the Christ. In verse 36, he is the Messiah, the exalted Lord of lords, King of kings, and he is the conquering king, and you crucified him. You crucified him. But that's not the end of the story. Because death can hold him. The gospel is clear in Peter's sermon. Jesus is Lord. He is the fulfillment of God's promise for an eternal kingdom from David. So Peter focuses a lot on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. Which means it's important. It's important for you and for I to understand these things. That Jesus did actually do this. But the question is why? Because the resurrection of Christ from the dead was a monumental declaration of the sonship of Christ. God declared him deity in resurrection, and God raised him from the dead as an affirmation that he was the second member of the Trinity. The resurrection was the declaration that he is indeed God. And if he is indeed God, that means his payment was sufficient for you and for me. The resurrection is the heart of the Christian faith. It it means the trustfulness of the word of God. It means the deity of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It means the completion of the salvation that God offers. If Jesus Christ didn't die for our sins and rise again, there is no hope. The word of God isn't the word of God. Jesus isn't God himself and therefore unable to pay the price for our sins. You see the train of what happens if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. But he did rise from the dead. The resurrection is central to the Christian faith. There is an empty tomb and there's 500 people that saw it. It's impossible to disprove it. So the Holy Spirit empowers Peter to proclaim the reason why the gospel is rooted in who Jesus is and what he did on the cross for his people, that he was delivered up by lawless men, that he died on the cross for our sins, but death couldn't hold him. God raised him from the dead. Not only he died paying the price for our sins, but rose again, showing that his sacrifice was sufficient to save. The gospel doesn't just leave us there, though. Because in verses 37 to 41, we see that the gospel demands a response. It's good news, but news needs to have a response. And we see it here. 
In verse 37, uh, Paul, Peter goes on and continues to say, Now then, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Notice that the response of the gospel is, let me wait upon it and let me let it stew in my heart. There's really only two responses to the gospel. Either you accept it or you reject it. There's no sitting on the fence. And sitting on the fence is just incredibly impossible to do over a long period of time. See, the gospel demands a response. There is no wait and see. I love this great illustration by a man named Bobby Jamieson. He's a pastor in his book, Going Public. He says, remember the mockers in verse 13. Now imagine you are the mocker. You are standing there in that crowd. And you begin to listen to Peter's sermon as he moves through the Old Testament, explaining how it points to Jesus being the Messiah who you just cheered at being crucified. The words begin, being said begin to cut deep into your hearts, which is only the Holy Spirit working in you. Conviction of your sins starts to trickle, but then it begins to flood. You begin to see that you have sinned against God, and now you know, that, you know what sin demands. It demands a payment. You know you're bankrupt. You know you can't pay, and you begin to feel the weight of that sin. So what do you do? You cry out, brothers, what shall we do? The gospel demands a response. To not respond is a response. Either you believe what Peter said about Jesus is or you reject it. To receive the word will bring forgiveness of sins as he will, as he will say later on. To reject Jesus is to accept the full weight of our sin before a holy God. And Peter has this clear response in verse 38. He says, Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So notice the pattern. Repent, and then be baptized. That is the pattern that we see. Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for what you have done. When someone is convicted by the Holy Spirit, like we see with those who respond, they first repent, though. So what is repentance? Repentance is a, a, a change of mind about who Jesus is. Literally, it means a turning, a turning away from something that is old to, a, to a, something that is new. And there's a big difference between repentance. There's a lot of fake repentance that's out there as well. There's a lot of people that act sorry for that short period of time, but their hatred of their sin doesn't grow. Repentance requires a sort of hatred, a sorrowful for, for the sin. In Canada, we're guilty of using this word sorry all the time. It drives me insane, because I do it too, because it cheapens the word. The word actually means to be sorrowful. I'm not sorrowful for bumping into someone by accident. I should be sorrowful for the sin I've done against a holy God. So they repent of their sin. 
the follow-through of a repentant life is baptism. There comes a hatred of sin and a resting in God's grace. And I love as, as Thomas Watson, he was an old Puritan guy, he said it this way, there is no rowing to paradise except upon the streams of repenting tears. It's a beautiful picture. But what is baptism? In the book, Going Public, Baptism is explained this way. To turn to Jesus in faith and baptism is to identify yourself with him and his followers and to distance yourself from those who reject him. You're being called to a public decision to follow Christ, and that decision is sealed publicly in baptism. Baptism is how you go public with your newfound faith in Christ. Baptism, if baptism is where faith goes public, then baptism is where you can see faith. You can say, hey, look, that person believes in Jesus. He, he just nailed his colors to the mast of ba- in baptism. Baptism is where conversion comes to head. Baptism is where you can see salvation enacted. Baptism isn't an invisible private event. It's actually an act of the church saying we believe your profession of faith. It's also when someone becomes a Christian and involves this public act of declaration. You can't separate them. Baptism is where faith goes public. It's when you can see faith in action. It's when you can say, look, that person believes in Jesus. That person has made his loyalties known. So that's why in 1 Peter 3, verse 21, it says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if baptism is where faith goes public and is used as a sort of a a, a cliff note uh, for the whole conversion process, then this explains what's going on here. Because baptism is faith going public. So when Peter comes along and says, repent, turn from your sin, rest in the grace of God, and then he quickly follows up with, and be baptized. He's saying, make your faith known. So let me say this. Don't keep putting baptism off if you're claiming to be a Christian. Rest in him and make your faith public. Baptism is a public profession of faith and repentance. It is a sign of the forgiveness and the cleansing you have experienced. It is a sign of your union with Christ in his death, burial, and his resurrection. It is a sign of your new life, the new creation, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So to sum it all up, baptism is faith going public. Even though it is regularly associated with commitment to Christ, it is not a right that can secure a blessing of salvation. It means that you don't get saved after you're baptized. You get baptized as a showing of what is happening inside of your hearts. It is followed by genuine repentance and faith. Remember the pattern that we see here in Acts 2. Repentance followed by baptism. And here's the amazing truth that comes out of this. God grants forgiveness even to those who rejected and killed Jesus. No one can out God's grace. But then we get to this fun passage in 39. 
You know, this passage is argued about a lot? A lot. And it says this, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who far, are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. For that, it's important to answer that question of what is the promise. Specifically, the promise is the promise of the Spirit. These verses must be read also in the context of what is being said here. You can't take a verse. There's a saying. It was a meme somewhere, I'm sure, that you can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Okay? So context is important. Historical context, but more importantly, biblical context is important. You got to read this passage in the context. So when Peter mentions children, we have to answer the question, who are the children in light of what the promise is? And Acts 2 answers who those children are in the prophecy of Joel in Acts 21, or Acts 2, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The blessing of salvation will be for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And those who repent, who call upon the name of the Lord, are to be baptized. Meaning that people everywhere must call on the name of the Lord for deliverance. God calls his people into a new covenant, as Galatians 4 calls Christians a children of promise, who are not born according to the flesh, but born through promise. This is why as a church, we, okay, so there's two types of views. There's something called paedo-baptism and credo-baptism. So paedo-baptism uh, baptizes babies, and credo-baptism is believer's baptism, and we hold to credo-baptism as a church because we believe that's what the Bible says. And that's what we believe this is saying here itself. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. It unites us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the word actually means to immerse. When I baptize someone, I think one of our greatest problems in, the, in our English translations is that we anglicize the Greek word. It, it literally means to dunk. So I might be joking around when I'm talking about baptism and talking to people going through baptism class, but we dunk you. That's what we do. We make sure you're good and wet. Not because we like that, maybe, (laughs) but because that's what the word of the Lord says. So that's what we do as a church. But Peter's main point in all of this, main point in all of this, is that salvation belongs to God. And he has chosen both those who will be saved and how it is going to happen. Let's keep in mind Acts 13, 48, which says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word, glorifying the word of the Lord, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God convicts and saves, and those who repent are then baptized because it's a public profession of their faith. Baptism is faith going public. And if you are ready to proclaim your allegiance to Jesus, I would strongly encourage you to take that step of faith of publicly proclaiming your faith in Christ by baptism. We have an awesome little booklet. Look how skinny this thing is. You could read it. I think it's 50 pages. 44. You could read it in, I don't know, an hour. If you're slow, like me. 
You can read it. Answering that question, why should I be baptized? There's also a great book called, and I've quoted already, uh, Going Public by Bobby Jameson, which is another great one that walks through what baptism is from a Baptist perspective. But as Peter continues on in verse 40, he says, save yourself from this crooked generation. There is a sense of urgency here. We are living in the last days, and the next great redemptive event is Jesus coming back, which we don't know the time of. So there demands a response to what Peter is saying. We too live in a crooked generation and need to be made right before God. It's the most burning issue we face. What will happen when Jesus comes back? What will happen to you if Jesus were to come back? But we can get more personal because we don't know when Jesus comes back. You also don't know when you're just going to die. I could be morbid and say you could walk out of this and get hit by a bus. I hope not. I really don't. Do. Hope. Whatever. (laughs) But the question is, is this. What will happen to you if you were to die today? And as Peter closes off this, or as Luke closes off his description of what is happening, notice the pattern again. So those who received his word, those who understood and rested and believed that Jesus Christ died for the sins and rose again, were baptized. And the outcome of the Holy Spirit working through Peter's sermon is amazing because they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here's the thing. There's nothing special about his sermon. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. We read this passage in its full and same results don't happen. I just read this passage and I don't see 3,000 people coming to Jesus Christ. That would have been awesome, right? That would have been great. And what's happening right here is only a, a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. He, dis, he, he disturbed their hearts. He convicted them of their sin. He drew them to Jesus. And when we look at the Pentecost, we see the sovereign work of a supernatural power. Zechariah 4, 6 says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Derek Thompson says the story of uh, a great preacher named George Whitfield, who was around just before uh, the uh, American Revolution. He was an itinerant evangelist. He was great, had great eloquence and power. He preached to multitudes in England, Scotland, Wales, and America. Whitfield's preaching was clearly anointed by God since fires of revival were lit wherever Whitfield preached. One of the main surviving antidotes from Whitfield's ministry involves his preaching among the miners in Bristol, who at that time were treated like animals and had little in way of food or warmth. And thousands of these men gathered around Whitfield when he came to preach, and a sea of coal-blackened faces arrayed before him. But when the preaching began, the Spirit of God moved, and the miners were pierced to the hearts in hearing of the love and mercy of God. As they began to weep, white lines appeared on their faces as tears cut furrows down their cheek. And many came to Christ that day as heavens were opened up in response to the preaching of God's word. 
The gospel demands a response. And the question for you and for me is, do we believe it? Do we believe what the gospel says? And do we go out declaring it ourselves? Do we pray for these same sort of results ourselves? So what in all of this? The main point is this, salvation belongs to God alone. And it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit in and through your words that convicts and saves. We see with this promise of the Holy Spirit a new era of salvation that is now here. God now dwells with his people and his Holy Spirit will empower his people to bring the message about Jesus to the nations. We see how the Holy Spirit convicts people of their sins and the need of a Savior and it's then that they repent and turn and are baptized giving a public declaration of his or her allegiance. It shows us also that we It also shows us what we are relying on as we preach or teach or evangelize. I'll let you into a little secret. There's a lot of time and effort that gets put into delivering messages. In fact, I would say that's probably most of my job. Everyone who stands here at this pulpit, at least at this church, has a weight that comes with it. I love how John Knox put it, I have a never... I have never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. But on top of that, you're thinking about movements and connecting with the listeners, and is that too funny? Is that not too funny enough? Are they bored? Are they whatever? Are there enough stories to help apply the truth of the Bible so that people can easily grasp it? For me, I started at a young age. I started teaching Sunday school and youth at about 19. I've done degrees and certificates, books. I've read books on preaching. I have theology books, doctrine books. I have many tools. But you know what? None of it saves. Not one ounce. I could come up here and give the best sermon possible ever. But none of that, even George Whitfield himself, could save. It's not my ability, it's not my lack of ability. It's not how good or bad my sermons are. It's not my education or my lack thereof or just me being a preacher. None of it can save. And that's humbling. It's also comforting because it's the power of the Holy Spirit and through the preaching that convicts and saves. And that's how Peter's sermon was used to save 3,000 people. But you say, I'm not a preacher. You are, pastor. Pastor. I would say that that means it brings you even more comfort. If that is the case with me, how much more is it with you? Every time you open your mouth to share the good news of Jesus, we can do that with confidence, not because of education or eloquence or whatever, but precisely and only because of the power of the Holy Spirit working within our words. And those who are hearing the needs, the need that they are sinners and they need Jesus. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit in and through your words that convicts and saves. So Luke ends his narrative with this 3,000 people being saved, which would be awesome, wouldn't it? I wouldn't know how to do the logistics of that, but 3,000 people would be awesome. And it's not by some fancy sermon, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this question as we begin to close. Do you pray for such a result in our time?
Because it's not by my might, not by your might, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you long to see these days? Do you pray for these things? A day when the Holy Spirit is working in such a way that through our faithful witness of the message of Jesus, God calls people to himself? Let's start doing that. And we're going to do it tonight as we gather together as a church to pray, to pray together. So hopefully I see you tonight at 4.30. And as one pastor said it, praying pulls the rope below and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell, for they pray so languidly. Others give but an occasional pluck at the rope. But he who wins with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all of his might. Tonight, let us come together to grasp the rope with boldness and pull continuously. That God would do great things in this city, in this country, and in this world. Let us pray.